0: From Tuesday. No. <laughs> we have a lot of double meanings, don't we? So. Yes, anyways, it doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. <laughs> But we all know that. Um, so, in the midst of civil war, David had to be wondering when the Lord is finally going to make him king over all Israel, as he had promised. So, as we've studied, he'd been giving so many opportunities to be rid of his enemies. And to declare himself as king. But he chose to trust God, not just to bring it about, but for God's timing. So that was the challenge he continued to do. And in his timing, he would bring about his will. So in our study today, we finally see the long awaited for coronation of David as king over all of Israel. You may be wondering why in the world are we studying a book like this, anyways, with treachery, killing, injustice? We're going to see a lot more awful things down the road. But we know that all the Word of God is inspired, and all of it is profitable for teaching and instruction so that we grow in our spiritual lives. So we who have come to faith in Jesus for salvation are so grateful for his sacrifice on behalf of sinners like you and me. And the truth is that Jesus is David's greater son. And when we consider the human genealogy of Jesus, one of the most important people in Jesus' line, is King David. If you've been someone active in pursuit of your heritage and trying to find out things about your background, you may find wonderful things or really awful things in your pursuit. And, well, that would be with Jesus as well. Our study in this book, then, are important because we're studying the human line of Jesus. This is his history from his earthly family line. And the narrative we see in chapter 4, it reminds us of the vulnerability of the weak, and then we will see the treachery of the strong and the justice of the king. And it's cutting out again? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's in and out. Oh, <laughs> okay. This chapter also clearly shows us that there are strong men and strong military leaders. We've seen Joab and Abner, intelligent, strong warriors, along with David. They were. The Navy SEALs and the Rangers of their day. And it's clear that in our studies we see violence begets more violence. Abner kills Joab, Joab kills Abner, and on and on it goes. So this chapter also presents two men who are not the powerful and they're not the strong. Saul's house has gradually become weaker and weaker and weaker. Ishbosheth is rather insignificant easily used by the powerful Abner. He had been made king by Abner, and you know what? He really feared Abner, and he realized that without Abner, he had no power. So with Abner dead, ish literally his hands dropped. He had no courage. In reality, he lost all grip on power. The other weaker man that we we're just briefly introduced to here, the only other surviving member of Saul's dynasty, is Mephibosheth. And he's just introduced that as a five-year-old boy, he was quickly being evacuated once the news came that his father, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, had been killed in battle. So his nurse grabbed him to run for him for his life, and in that hurry, he, they, he fell, she dropped him, whatever happened, and he became lame in both feet. And in those days, having such a disability would not qualify you to be the king. So being well acquainted with physical disabilities in the last few years of my life, through that of my granddaughter, and then just these few months for my own limitation, when I read that, it just kind of jumped out at me. Were I not to have corrective surgery on my recent injury, I would be lame in that foot for the rest of my life. So in chapter nine, we will see more about the rest of the story of Mephibosheth, but he's just introduced to us here briefly. So it's interesting that God takes note of all kinds of people, reminding us that he cares for the weak, the lame, and the strong movers and shakers. With David on the throne, uh, justice and and care for the weak will will all be properly addressed. David was a man after God's own heart. Therefore, he cares about what happens to Ishbosheth, and we will see his great compassion for Mephibosheth in a few chapters. So David cared about justice because he had a heart for the things of God. <clears throat> and it mattered to him. And David, we see something of the mercy and something of the justice of God. So we begin with the murder of Ishbosheth. Now, when ish Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. I bet they were. So all of the northern tribes felt the big impact of Abner being dead everybody realized he was their leader and now what would be their future We've already recognized the weakness of Ishbosheth without the man he depended on. He did not have it within himself to try to reassert his authority over Israel. instead he and the people that he supposedly was leading uh, were feeling very fearful and a panic for the future. So there's a huge political vacuum. And Ishbosheth wasn't about to abdicate the throne to David. That would have been the smart thing to do. Let's all join behind David. But he wasn't going to do that. And likely there were many people at that time in Israel who wanted to support David, but they were as a loss. And a loss is what to do at this point. So when uh, verses two and three introduces to a couple uh, army rangers or whatever they were who decided, Ah, we'll assassinate. Nobody wants this king anyway. He's a loser. So we'll just take care of the situation. So these brothers, Bana and Rechab, were Benjamites. And they looked at the political situation and had their own solution. And in doing so, they thought they'd be rewarded greatly as a true hero, uh, expediting David on the throne as king over all of Israel. And then the brief introduction to Mephibosheth in verse 4, as I've already mentioned, uh, what happened to him as a boy. And sadly, <clears throat> Treachery has often been a part of changing political powers. Uh, that's been true through the centuries. It's still true today, and that's why his nurse ran with him to spare his life from possible assassination because maybe she thought Ishbosheth would kill him or David or something. So she wanted to get this little boy to safety. If you were with us in our study last year, first Samuel, you'll, you'll recall the covenant that David and Jonathan made with each other, that they would look after each other's family members. So David will have that opportunity to show this son of Jonathan kindness. Uh, and we'll see that later in chapter 9. So for now, we're just introduced. And these two guys are the last, uh, as I said, of Saul's dynasty. <clears throat> Next, we see the cruel murder of Ishbosheth. So the sons of Ramon departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. And then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. <clears throat> now it kind of goes back for more details. Now, when they came into the house, as he was lying in his bedroom, they struck him, and killed him, and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of Ereba all night, it's about 30 miles, I read. And then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and on his descendants. Talk about not knowing David well. This was a huge mistake. These men had obviously some type of power or authority that they had the freedom to come into Ishbosheth's house on the saying they're going to get wheat. I don't know what that's about. But they had worked under Saul and Abner. But they take the head of this man that they just killed and carried it as a trophy to David. They're proud of what they have done. And uh, they rationalized the killing. They actually said, the Lord has avenged David of his enemies. We're doing this, you know, for the Lord. Does that sound familiar, too? People cutting off people's heads for their God? But instead of honor, they received justice from David. And as has already been said, David was waiting patiently for God to make him king. David never took the shortcut to make this happen. And these two guys think they've done David such a big favor. But David would never take the kingdom by force. These treacherous killers brought God into the picture as if they were doing this for him. So not, as I said, unlike many today who do things and distort the scripture to say whatever it is they want to justify their sin. The response of David is to do justice. David answered these two men by saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. Now, David knew he was standing before the Lord in his presence as he spoke. And he is telling these guys that the reason he's alive right now after running for his life for years and years and years is because God had delivered him. David goes on to tell them a story you can just imagine, I don't know, are they still holding the head? I don't know. You know, sweat dripping down their necks, back, sweaty palms, I don't know, but this isn't going as planned. So David goes on to tell them the story that someone else came to them thinking they brought great news that Saul and his sons were dead and even claimed to have mercy killed Paul. Saul. rather. So like you, this man thought he would uh, get a great reward for such good news. However, David seized him and killed him for his news. So verse 11, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed, shall I now not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? David is innocent of these deaths. He, and He doesn't want anyone to think he this is an attempt to hire for assassination. He is innocent. These guys did this on their own. And so David reacts with being just as the king. He was going to rule by the law, not by vengeance and not by lawlessness. David is punishing evildoers for their sinful deeds. And he wants to honor the law of God uh, that God has given to his covenant people. And even though he was uh, only king of Judah at this point, David is taking... His role as the one to meet out justice seriously. God takes justice seriously. You know, we live in a world that that's not really the case. And that's why his holy scriptures, God requires that he must address evil and sin committed against him. And it's for this reason that David's greater son came into the world in the first place. As the sinless God man, he bore the wrath, the holy wrath that God has or sin, and Jesus hung in the place of sinners like you and me making it possible to be forgiven. Vengeance belongs to God and Him alone and He will repay. It may appear that people are getting away with murder and perhaps for a time they are, but ultimately God will deal justly with every single person. And really that's bad news for a sinner indeed because Uh, without the death of christ there is no hope but for those who have come to christ for forgiveness we have hope based on the payment made that covered that satisfied god's holiness for all of our offenses against a holy god so god doesn't just dismiss wrongs and look the other way they have to be dealt with he will deal with sin and uh there is that principle in the scripture be sure your sin will find you out there really is no getting by when Jesus returns to earth, he will rule this world with righteousness and justice, the millennial kingdom. Justice will be made right, and justice of uh, David is really pointing us to the justice of the ultimate king, Jesus. So, the just actions of David also demonstrated he had no part, as I said, in what these guys had planned. It's interesting to know uh, to that David describes Ishbosheth as a righteous man. Wouldn't be my first take on the man. But, uh, he didn't call him the Lord's anointed as he did Saul uh, earlier uh, but Ishmasheth should never have become king as we've discussed in the past without the authority of the Lord and the Lord's spokesman rather he was king because of Abner who could control him however David still says he was a righteous man in the sense that he had done nothing to deserve treason and assassination by these two guys while he's laying in his bed even from early, child, uh, early childhood, mankind complains, if you've had children, you know, that's not fair. And really, for those without a seared conscience, we all have a sense of longing for justice, for fairness, for equity amongst people. That's put there by God in the way he made us. Jesus is the perfect righteous Judge. And we read in the book of Isaiah that the Messiah will indeed come and bring justice to the world and he will punish the guilty. So, David, early in his kingship here, wants it to be clear that he does not approve of men getting power by such methods as these two brothers. Nonetheless, the assassination was used by God, their evil, to clear the way for David to finally be king over all of Israel. The execution of these two uh, brings justice. Uh, their hands and feet were cut off and their bodies were hung beside a pool in Hebron. Obviously not a swimming pool, I don't know, you <laughs> pin bodies up there without hands and feet. Uh, I read that their hands are the ones that murdered and their feet brought the head so maybe that's why they were cut off, I don't know. But in total contrast to the remains of the assassins, uh Ish-bosheth's head is given an honorable burial in the tomb of Abner right in Hebron. The two had been together in life and David said they're going to be together in burial so now Saul, Jonathan, Jonathan's other brothers, Abner, ish all dead and none of it had anything to do with David so the way is now open for him at last to be on the throne over all of Israel so David is coronated in verses one through five of chapter five Then then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and king David made a covenant with them before the lord at Hebron, and they appointed David king over Israel. So at this 11 tribes come voluntarily to David and try to convince him we should all just be one. Let's all get along. So clearly um, they have been part of Saul and his camp. They have been part of hunting David for years and years and years. And then even when David or Saul was killed, these people were a part of a civil war against David and their own countrymen. Now for many of them, they certainly were around and could not have forgotten when David slew Goliath that was a stunning moment and then all the bravery of David going out on behalf of Saul and taking out their enemies he was their national hero and they had known back then he was such a strong leader they knew the great victories he brought for their country and yet they had joined with Saul in his paranoid behavior to hunt down a national hero For years and years and years to try to kill him. And even after Saul was dead, as I said, they continued to stand against David and his men and were willing to fight along Abner's side. Suppressing the truth. You know what? That is nothing new. That's what Romans 1 is all about, that mankind has done from the beginning. And people suppress the truth today. Even believers can do that. They suppress the knowledge these people did that they had about David. They knew all this. Something can be so very clear and so very obvious and yet and you know this as well as I, people do not see what they do not want to see. You don't see what you don't want to see. <laughs> and the same for me. In this meeting of the elders of Israel and David, they point out that they are his own flesh and blood and they declare that he's their hero in and, and all conflicts and then they finally admit that they, they knew he was to be their shepherd. I mean, David was the shepherd boy taking care of his dad's sheep, and God called him to be the shepherd king who would look after the people of Israel. So they anoint David for the third time, third time's a charm, and after all these years of waiting, he's king over all Israel. It's easy to skip over these verses, and really fail to see the significance of these events in this chapter. They really are huge. David becoming king over a united Israel and then David making Jerusalem the capital is so important. David began the line of kings that lasted over 400 years, bringing the hope of the greater king to come, none other than Jesus himself. And up to this point, Jerusalem was occupied by Canaanite people, the Jebusites, because they had blown it at the time of Joshua and never cleared them out as they were commanded but we shall see that this city and you know it even today has become the most important religious capital for the Jewish people and we love Jerusalem because our savior was crucified there he walked about giving his ministry and teaching there and was resurrected there and if you've ever gotten to go there it's stunning to walk and be in that very place so all that began in this chapter we're looking at. So it does have huge implications. So that brings us to the capture of Jerusalem in verse 5. We read that David reigned a total of 40 years and a half. And his first task as king was to get rid of this foreign enemy, the Jebusites, and to set up something more neutral between the north and the south. And Jerusalem was the perfect place. It was a great location neutrally, and it had a natural fortress because it's surrounded by deep valleys, as it is today more easily defensible on three sides. It also had great water supply from Gihon Springs, and it's close to the travel routes for trade. So this was part of the promised land that simply had never been conquered. So the Jebusites brashly mocked David, declaring, oh, we'll get our disabled people, the blind and the lame, and we'll have them come, and they'll be able to take care of your army, no problem. However, David and his army captured the stronghold of Zion, which became known as the city of David. And we see in verse 8 that the army of David came into the city through the water tunnel. And if you looked at First Chronicles 11:6, David had promised that whoever figured out a way into the city would be his new commander-in-chief. And so it's not surprising that the very intelligent war tactic guy, Joab, came up with this way and got, him, got the army into the city. So they captured it. The Milo is a mention, it's a Hebrew word that means the fill, likely a reference to the hills that were filled in to make the city more level. Uh, It could also speak of the protection that they had to build on the north side of the city because that was vulnerable. Zion is used to refer to the stronghold that David and his men captured. And once the city was captured, David got busy making sure it was fortified. And so much of the Psalms, you know, David's going to Zion and he loves Zion and talks about Zion. Because David lived there, it also became known as the city of David. Verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. All the angelic hosts, the Lord of all of them, was with David. The king that God had appointed was now in power. And it was God who was helping him to be accepted and have success in whatever he was doing. And then there's a very smart guy named Hiram. Uh, Soon... King Hiram comes from Tyre with messengers, and gifts, and cedar. We want to build you a nice house, uh, David, and we want to be in a good relationship with you. Interestingly, a couple years ago, when I had the privilege to be in Israel, it's just been excavated, David's original house, or the palace. Mm -hmm. Under, you go way down uh, where it is, but you can see what house David lived in at that time, even now. So in verse 12 it was now clear to Israel, even the surrounding peoples, that God is with David. And David could see how God was blessing him, David gives God glory and credit for establishing him as king and helping him. You know what? God keeps his word. And here's another important truth, because we're studying this book, we're seeing right here the fulfillment of promises made centuries earlier to Abraham. Remember years ago we studied Genesis? Promises made, this is being fulfilled right here in our study. Therefore, based on that, we can be assured that he is faithful to keep his word to us as well. The Lord God of hosts is not just with David, as we read in this chapter. This great God became flesh and made the promise to be with each of us who are his children when we come to him through the merits of Jesus on the cross. So we have the same hope. We have the same promise. The Lord of Hosts is with us. He will never leave us. He will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. His presence is not limited to favorite, amazing men like David. <clears throat> Verses 13 through 16 is a section that closes this uh, part of this chapter with a very—you'd like to slap David, but we couldn't. Um, he starts multiplying wives and concubines in direct violation to De- Deuteronomy 17:17. 17, 17. David was doing what was the cultural practice of his day, we'll make treaties, they gave their daughters, that means, you know, we have a peace treaty because you're marrying my daughter, and that's how it was done. And you build up your harem, so that there's lots and lots and lots of kids. So David fell into the cultural norm and accepted, but it, but it wasn't what God's acceptable plan was but anyways we come to the final war with the philistines then when uh, verse 17 when the philistines heard that uh, they had anointed david as king over all israel all the philistines went up to seek out david and when david heard of it he went down to the stronghold then david inquired of the lord saying shall i go up against the philistines will you give them into my hand and the lord said to david go up i will certainly give them philistines into your hand so the Philistines immediately realized that Israel is now united, and they're a great threat under David. It must have been really humiliating, too, because they let David hang out. Remember the king who wanted him to help them? I mean, this is really humiliating that now he is the king of their, when they had let them live, him live and his men in their own land. So the Valley of Raphaim was about uh, south, several miles, south of Jerusalem. And they had used the same tactic in their fight with Saul, um, calling the place where it's going to be, the war. However, things are going to be different now. It is clear that David is a brilliant soldier and has intelligence and planning and plotting. He had skills and wise tactics. But even with these skills, his first move was to seek the Lord for his direction, his approval. Uh, Such a great reminder, really, to each of us, because Many of us have learned many things through the hard knocks of life. We've learned things through trials. We've learned things through education, a job, on-the-job training, things you've mastered, uh, particular gifts or talents that you've developed and that you are good at. And you know it's very easy uh, to just go ahead and use our natural instincts or wisdom that we've acquired uh, to make a decision without bathing it in prayer first. David didn't lean on his own understanding. Rather, he acknowledged God, who he knew directed his paths. So the first victory for Israel was gained by attacking from the front. And the second, directed by God, was to attack from the rear. It's likely that David sought these answers. Well, it's possible that he did this through the linen ephod that had the yes and no questions. Not really sure. David planned the attacks, but sought the Lord, as I said, whether to go to battle or not. Here we see a perfect blending of the use of intelligence, planning, skill, along with asking the Lord to deliver and resolve the problem. They blend together. It isn't um, some people just say, "Well, I have no, I'm not, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to pray." Well, you have a brain. God's gifted you. He's given you talents. He's given you skills. You use those in coming up. You don't excuse doing nothing. And then you make plans, you try to figure things out, but you submit whatever you're doing to God. Is this what you want me to do? Often we're guilty of coming up with a solution because it really makes sense to us. And then we just want God to bless this decision that I'm going to do without being in full submission if he had a different plan. Well, obviously... It is God that gets the glory for all and the credit for the success of the two battles here that David faced with the Philistines. David named the site of the first victory the Lord of Breaking Through. Uh, The enemy was completely defeated. They abandoned their idols in their attempt to escape. I remind you that the time when the Philistines had gotten the victory back in 1 Samuel 4 and took the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they thought they were the champions, but they never defeated Israel's God. And they found great trouble in that whole scene, as you recall. And now the tables are turned, and the capture of their false man-made gods is the end of their story. In the second battle with the Philistines, God caused the rustle of the balsam trees blowing to sound like marching. And the attack from behind forced the Philistines 15 miles driven back in defeat. God's power and his protection is so clearly seen by all. So in verse 24, David is told by God that the Lord will, have no, that has, will go out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. So the Lord paved the way. And David did exactly then what God said for him to do. And the result was God's will was done. What a critical reminder that simple war tactics uh, that we see in this, in, as I've already mentioned really to us, that we don't go ahead Um, Of trying to find the Lord's leading and you may be thinking well, I just want an ephod. I want a yes or no answer. Should I move? Yes No. Should I marry this person? No. Should I do this? Yes, that would be nice But we have something far superior to an ephod to a dream that may be caused from indigestion We have the Word of God David did what God told him to do and God powerfully worked to accomplish his will. And how often we disobey, we ignore, we don't seek his word first. We just want, as I said, God to bless what we've chosen to do in our own decision, in our own wisdom. We need to learn from this man after God's own heart. Go directly to the Lord, obey the situation in prayer before you attempt to do the thing that you think should be done. Even if God has given us talents and gifts that we are to use for His glory, they will never take the place of seeking the Lord for clarity and direction. Can I remind you of what Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Boy, is that ever true. I don't know how God wants to apply this particular lesson to your own heart, we know from Romans 15:4 that this passage we have studied was written for our instruction, for our encouragement. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when you are uncertain about a financial decision you have to make, or you're uncertain about a child-related decision, what you should do about a decision for their well-being, or something related you need to do for your marriage, or a job, or a ministry in the church, don't lean on your own understanding. Go to the Lord, obey the situation in prayer, seek his clarity and his direction. He has given you a mind, he expects you to use it, but not to the neglect of submitting your thoughts and your plans and your thinking to the Lord for his direction. The other truth I see here is that justice really does matter to God. One day he will deliver justice to all. And what we all deserve is punishment for our breaking every law of God. But praise Him if you know Jesus today that it's possible to know His mercy and not His wrath. What an amazing truth. Lord, I thank you for the cross that you made it possible where you have meted out justice for our sin, our harsh words, our impatience, our worry, all the sins that we commit. Lord, I thank you that your death on the cross was sufficient to pay for them all. And that we can stay in right fellowship with you when we repent throughout the day, when we blow it again and again. Lord, I pray that you administer whatever truth you have from these two chapters to each lady here, Lord. You know their hearts, you know their struggles, you know their situations they're facing. And I pray that as they seek to do your will today, as a mom, a grandma, a a sister, Friends, Lord, fill them with the knowledge of your will in Jesus' name.